HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com, bringing you the freshest radio in Brooklyn since 2009. Hear directly from chefs to farmers, artists to architects, authors to brewers, and everyone in between. Check out all of our shows on our website or by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes store. Hi, I'm Steve Jenkins. I work for Fairway Markets in the New York area, and we're awfully proud to support Heritage Radio and we care so much about everything that goes on out here at Roberta's and their studio because they talk to people who are, are serious about food. And that's what we are at Fairway is we're serious about food. We, we just care very deeply about, about you as a, as a customer and how you cook and what you cook with and how you entertain. And, and that's why we love to support Heritage Radio because it, it, it's pretty much the same thing. It's wanting to to find happiness through serious food and people who are serious about it and, and care about learning everything there is to learn about it. And that's, that's, we're kindred spirits. If it's something worth having in your kitchen, you're going to find it at, at Fairway. And if there's somebody worth talking to about food, you're going to find them on Heritage Radio and we will be supporting you guys for a long, long time. At Fairway, I'm your personal grocer, Steve Jenkins, Fairway Market. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this half-hour journey through culinary history. And today, well, we'll take a little different turn. We're going to talk about movies, or a movie in particular. And the movie is The Help. If any of you have seen The Help, and it was based on a, on a book by the same name, uh, you might remember that food was pretty much front and central in that movie. And it's uh, it's interesting that it's hard for me to imagine that there are probably a whole lot of people who were born, well, I know there are a whole lot of people born after the, the, the 60s who would not really know what food to put on the table if they were making a movie about the 60s. And so then, of course, the producers and directors have to call upon 
food stylists and researchers who know about this kind of food. And today I am very happy to have with me somebody who knows about this food quite a bit because she lives in the Mississippi Delta and the movie takes place in Jackson, Mississippi during the Southern, during the Civil Rights Movement. And her name is Martha Hall Foos. Martha, are you there? Hi, Linda. Hi, welcome. Martha, um, for our listeners who may not be familiar with Martha, she is a James Beard Award winner for her book, Screen Doors and Sweet Tea. I mean, the name alone, you know, conjures up the back porch, right? I can hear the screen door slamming shut. Screen Doors and Sweet Tea. And now she has a new book out called A Southerly Course. Recipes and Stories from Close to Home. And the Southerly Course picks up right where Screen Doors and Sweet Tea left off. Martha, I, tell you know, you just, you live and cook and breathe this food. So for you doing the movie, um, you were one of the stylists for the movie. It must have just been second nature for you. It was a wonderful experience. And um, part of it that was so great was it really took the whole town to get all that food made. Um, a wonderful woman, Leanne Fleming, who writes a column for the Greenwood, Mississippi newspaper, the Commonwealth, um, she made all of the the uh, infamous pies in the film. That's what tons, I was going to ask you about, the pies. Right? <laughs> tons of other food. And a wonderful woman, Mary Hoover, who um, her family has a laundromat uh, grocery market over in Baptist Town um, in Greenwood, worked on tons of the food, and then we had school teachers and accountants and uh, nursing home cooks, and uh, it was it was so it was it was really the food of the people. I mean, it was it was really quite authentic then. Uh, it really was. Um, when you were speaking earlier, I was born in '67, and the film uh, takes place in '62, '63, right. and um, that was the year my folks got married. So, you know, we looked at uh, engagement party photos and uh, um, all sorts of uh, pictures and cookbooks from the time to make sure that, you know, we really uh, were being authentic and, and true to the time period. Right. Well, there was one, um, a, a particular scene where, of course, the um, some of the, the characters are having, oh, we don't want to give everything away, but some of the characters are having a bridge party, the infamous bridge parties. That must have been fun to research, the food of bridge parties. I remember some well. <laughs> My grandmother was quite the bridge hand, and, um, you know, a lot of it were um, just the things that I grew up, you know, seeing sort of after the, you got home from school and bridge bridge club was over, you know, the leftover lady finger sandwiches and and the mysterious and frightening tomato aspic in the refrigerator. That was good. The je- yeah, they, the, all those jello, sa- the jello molds, the jello molds were everywhere. <laughs> it's a very congealed, in, congealed intensive time period in the South. Well, and there was a beautiful bit about, of course, the infamous ambrosia. Now, is, is ambrosia something you run across very much still down there, or is it, did you have to dig that one, or all um, of you dig that no, up? Well, I have in Screen Doors and Sweet Tea, I have a recipe for ambrosia, and in most of my books, the recipes are dedicated to either a person or a place or an event that I find it really ties me to home, mm-hmm. and that recipe in Screen Doors and Sweet Tea was dedicated to a woman that worked for our family named Charlotte um, Miles, and 
So uh, ambrosia is definitely something that, that we see a lot of. I did it last year for a big um, Memphis Ballet benefit and never, ever volunteer to make ambrosia for 200 people unless you've got a lot of time on your hands. For people who might not be familiar with it, can you, uh, can you describe what it is for us, please? Um, uh, oranges and uh, grated coconut and definitely in the 60s you would have seen it with maraschino cherries. Right. And, and were they oranges or are they those little mandarin oranges from the can? That's how I always remembered it. The um, little, <laughs> not even fresh, the canned mandarin oranges. <laughs> The, the miraculous canned mandarin right. oranges. And my mom still puts a can of mandarin oranges in everybody's Christmas stocking every year. Just, <laughs> just for old times' Something old time that we sake. do. <laughs> well, the beautiful, towards the end of the movie, there was that the beautiful spread on the table. And um, so now, now if my listeners go to the movie, they're going to not focus on the topic so much, but on the food, right? Um, but the spread uh, at the end was just phenomenal. There were... So many dishes there that really evoke uh, the whole area of that the south, the south there, the Mississippi Devil. At least to me, I mean the baked ham, of course the fried chicken, the and then again maraschino cherries. Yeah, <laughs> fixed to the ham. It was a well, and there's a recipe that was on the table that you have. Well, you yours in the this um, most recent book is a little bit different. And what I love, you said you dedicated the the recipe in your last book. Um, and had tied it to characters in your lives, which you do in this book, too, A Southerly Course. You tie every recipe to a story or to an event, and um, is that that's just something you love to do, is storytelling? Um, I think that's why I ended up as a cook. Um, it seemed like when there's a party, everybody hangs out in the kitchen, and generally most of the good storytelling seems to happen, uh, I think, more in the kitchen than around the table, but... Um, uh, I just uh, think that the two, in American, well, in any sort of cooking, are, are linked together. But I think particularly in the South, um, if you live in a really rural area or, you know, a small town, there are not um, tons of restaurants to go out. You're not going to drop by and pick up takeout food all of the time. And in Greenwood, where the movie, the help was filmed we don't even have a movie theater in town so if you want to go to the movie to see the movie you have to drive you know to greenville which is a town you know about an hour and a half away and so i think cooking and feeding people is we use that for entertainment because we don't have entertainment thrust at us all the time so we kind of have to make up our own fun and keep each other entertained and, and food's just just part of what we do. Um, well, there are some wonderful things to talk about in the book um, and recipes that you have. But I want to get back to the work that you did on the movie, and I wanted to ask you what was what was the biggest challenge as a as a cook that you had, and a chef, and an, an instructor, even. What was the the biggest challenge you had in trying to uh, replicate the food of that era? Uh, well. A lot of it we were cooking on the back of a flatbed trailer in August outside. That's, that's <laughs> a pretty good challenge. <laughs> so that was the biggest challenge. Um, uh, it was hard to sort of curtail your modern aesthetic, to sort of put that literally on the back burner mm-hmm. and really um, stay true. You know, I think today with all the gelées and things, you know, even um, uh, things like tomato aspect, you know, I think you're starting to kind of see 
those type dishes again. But in, you know, I wanted it to look pretty and something that I would want to eat. So I wanted to put, you know, fresh steamed asparagus with it. And then it's like, no, it's 1962 in Mississippi. It was a can of asparagus spears that were going to be used. And so that was a challenge to sort of put your modern aesthetic aside and really um, uh, embrace canned pineapple and (laughs) Yes, for the infamous upside down pie cake, right? (laughs) Of course. Um, So that that was that was uh, personally challenging for me, Mm -hmm. Um, and the just the sheer quantity of food that you have to make when it's being filmed, you know, um, and everything has to look just like the last one, you know. So if they take a slice out of a cake or a pie or something. The next one has to be able to jump right in and, and have the same uh, slice out, right? <laughs> take its place. And so right. um, it was a, a wonderful experience. Chris Ubik, who was the prop master for the film, um, you know, a prop is is anything that the actors touched, and so it's not just the background food. You know, anything that 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 they touch, and so um, she was wonderful in um, uh, letting us know what was happening and being really open if there was something that they she'd ask us to make. And we were like, there's no way that's something you would have had in Mississippi <laughs> in 1962. Um, you know, they, they really let us um, have input into what we, we felt would be um, the most appropriate dish or the type of serving platter, um, that sort of thing. And I think... Even though tons of the food that we made literally ended up on the cutting room floor, um, I think that it it really was helpful for the the actors and things that that so much detail and care was taken into um, you know every piece of food that was cooked. I mean, oh. I, I don't want to begin to think how many bites of fried chicken must have been consumed or at least (laughs) bitten into to get the right take, but it certainly looked good enough. I would have bitten into any one of them. Well, I want to talk more about um, food and comfort and, and being part of, of the, the life and, and uh, the whole Southern ascetic. Um, We're going to take a short break and we come back. We'll talk more about a Southerly course. And she don't mean me no good She's a mean mistreater And she don't mean me no good Well, you know I don't blame you, baby I'll be the same way if I could She's a mean mistreater And the girl mistreats me all the time She's a mean mistreater And the little girl mistreats me all the time Well, you know you just have to quit me, darling 
Because you got that on your mind Well, you remember that Monday morning That I knocked up, up on your door You had the nerve to tell me that you didn't love me no more Can't you remember, baby When I knocked up on your door Hi, we're back, and we're talking with Martha Foos, uh, the author of the cookbook, A Southerly Course. It's actually a lot more than a cookbook, Martha. It's really uh, a, a chatty, kind of a chatter, chatty sit around the kitchen table, let's cook something book. That's, that's how I feel about it. Um, I hope that was intentional. <laughs> well, uh, I'm going to go with it. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, just to get back to um, the the movie and, and the cookbook and tying it together, I saw a dish on the table in the movie, and it was this beautiful bowl of sliced carrot coins, and you've got a recipe for it in the book, calling it copper pennies. And what I love is that Every recipe has a nickname. Now, what's with that? Tell me about the nickname for copper pennies, first of all. Um, well, once, and you know, it's it's such a old standby recipe. Um, I think it was probably one of those, like off of the back of a can of Campbell's tomato soup at some point. <laughs> but once the carrots are marinated, they really take on this burnished sort of look of a of a copper penny and. Um, it's a dish that I like to serve um, for, like, engagement parties. It's great because of the little rhyme, you know, something borrowed, something blue, and a sixpence in her shoe. But, you know, around here, a sixpence is hard to come by. So a lot of brides will put a penny in their shoe from the year they were born huh. um, as a good luck token and then add it to the charm bracelet later on. <laughs> well, I didn't even realize that that was the end of that little ditty. I just always thought it was something old, something new, something borrowed, something blue. I thought it ended with something blue. I didn't realize it went on. So the nickname for this dish is called Bride's Shoes, right? Or bride <laughs> Shoe or something like that? Uh, well, what I I think that something that is is very interesting about this book, you were talking about a challenge in the movie was giving up your modern aesthetic um, to create this food, some of it maybe that we would kind of curl up our nose and go, ooh, you're using canned asparagus, as you said. <laughs> but you talk a lot about the, we don't talk about it, but it's evident through the recipes, the evolution of the Southern food, using a lot of the same old Southern, you know, local ingredients, obviously, but things, how you've modernized things a bit. Um, an example of that, I think, um, one that you give, too, is... Um, the oh, sweet pickle braised pork shoulder. Oh, I love that dish. Oh, it is delicious looking uh, the picture, but I got to tell you. <laughs> uh, pork shoulder, and it's slow cooked with um, barbecue sauce and sweet pickle relish. Um, and in a lot of the recipes in the book, I call for um, preserves and jams and that sort of thing, which I think, even though it's, you know, totally an old way of dealing with things. I think that we've seen such a resurgence in people doing home canning and with farmer's markets. You see this array of all these, you know, handmade and homemade jams. And so Absolutely. 
the sweet pickle relish used in the pork shoulder, and then um, I have a fondue that's made with um, fig preserves and toasted pecans with Gruyere and Emthal. That was that that made me want to get out the old fondue pot. Let me tell you. (laughs) (laughs) And then also, you know, in the dessert chapters, I have a plum cheesecake bar that's made with plum jelly and a blackberry. Jelly roll that's made with blackberry preserve oh, and a blackberry jam cake. That is a that's a beauty. Wow. Oh, that's a delicious cake. It's kind yeah. of like caramel cake and spice cake and jam cake all turned into one big glorious cake. Well, and then you, as you, I say, you know, you tell these little stories about each one, and it really does give one the flavor of life of Southern life and and kind of a throwback to a a slower time a slower calmer time of of eating and family and and enjoying friends and something that well here in new york city obviously we you know everything's rush rush and we're you know going out to the the newest restaurant but it just in reading the book from front to back it just calmed me down and gave me this feeling of of another place in time um, i think one of the things that um I find with people my age in the South is that we sort of have this nostalgia for uh, this mythical time that never really existed. And I think um, lately, you know, people kind of embracing this this, uh, nostalgia, it kind of gives us a way to remake the South as we wish it had been and we wish it could be. And so I think... um, I think that sort of sentimentality that Southerners wear on their sleeve and, and the way they, they interact with their food, um, I, think, I think it's nothing but good, and it, and it really gives us uh, grounds to sort of reimagine the South. And the food, I have to say, the photographs in the book are, there's something, now I'm going to say something, and you'll probably, you know, <laughs> say, oh, no, that's not true. But they're, they look as a food style. So they, but to me, the pictures in the book look so homey, almost like unembellished, like this is the food, and the food speaks for itself so often, you know, you see these photos that have been, if not airbrushed, they've been, you know, they've got too many other props around them to make the food look good. This is just all the food speaks for itself, and it's not dolled up or decked out. It just kind of, it's just there, and it looks very, very real, very home-cooked. Oh, thank you. Very Um, wonderful. My... Dear friend Chris Granger, the photographer um, who worked on uh, Southerly Course, uh, shoots for the Times Picayune. Mm-hmm. And um, having worked in food photography studios and all of that, um, and worked on books where you've got, you know, an art director, an assistant art director, and a <laughs> like all these people staring at one plate of food discussing where a tomato should go. Okay. Um, you know, it was just, you know, me and Chris and and some friends and. Uh, you know, everything was shot, you know, in and around our home and, you know, with our family dishes and that sort of thing. So it really, I think we wanted to truly document what our foodways close to home are like and not um, chintz it up too much. Right. Well, and that really did come across. It it, it did. Um, you told a great, in, in the book you, you write um, a wonderful little story about the author Eudora Welty. And if you 
and then you and you incorporate a recipe from her in there. Can you give us a little shortened version of that? It was a beautiful little story. Oh, um, sure. Uh, Mary Alice White, Eudora's niece, um, graciously um, offered to let me come to the Eudora Wealthy House, which is now uh, preserved as a museum. And it's honestly, you feel like she's just stepped out of the room for a second. Everything now, is she, and she was from... Um, from Jackson, from Jackson, Mississippi. Right. And um, so um, I went went into the kitchen of the home, and it's this tiny little kitchen, and remarkable to realize that she had developed her photographs in the kitchen sink there before there were street lights. It was dark enough to do that, and she had burned the manuscript from the petrified man in the the stove in that kitchen had had flown up the chimney, and she reread it, rewrote it by memory several months later. Oh. Um, and on in her house, there are thousands of books. I mean, there's not a way another book could fit into any of the bookcases. And there's one tiny little baker's rack in the kitchen with two shelves of cookbooks on them. And I picked up her joy of cooking and these handwritten recipes and newspaper recipes from newspaper clippings that she had stuck in there um, fell out of the book, and, and we were just so startled, Mary Alice, her niece, and I, and we sat down in little folding chairs in the kitchen and went through all of her cookbooks trying to decipher which recipes had been used because of stains or splatters or a piece of <laughs> onion skin stuck in the book. And um, on the back flyleaf of most of the cookbooks, and there were probably only eight or so, um, she had written the page number and the recipe title of her favorite recipes in she seemed to have quite a fondness for puddings and custards because most of the clipped um, recipes and the the ones that seemed to have been uh, marked by their use were majority were for puddings and custards and custard pies and corn souffles and and um, the like. And so, in a subtly course, I have a custard pie that's really a simple, classic egg custard pie that's graced with a little bit of of uh, grated nutmeg on the top of it um, that I had included as a tribute to her and how much um, her storytelling had meant to me and 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 her work uh, really means a lot to me now that I've been back in Mississippi for about 10 years now and, and I, I just appreciate her leading by example that you don't have to leave the place that you really love to gain perspective on it, that, that you can really explore the world that you inhabit and not, um, you don't have to exile yourself to, to see what home is like. Oh, very nice. And it, and it, I mean, it really, you do give just a a terrific, as I said before, terrific sense of place, place and, but time removed. (laughs) (laughs) Um, one thing that I, that I, I thought me might've been, um, difficult for you, but then it, it, doesn't show at all is that you are primarily a pastry chef and you've opened a couple of different bakeries right um and yet you i think that your your savory dishes are indeed some of the most uh what can i say enticing dishes that i not not that the baked goods aren't aren't deliciously looking you know sound and sounding recipes but the savory dishes are are equally as as good and um do you did you get do you ever get tired? Did you, or did you get tired of just doing the baking? And was this a good depart departure for you? Well, 
again, living in a in a sort of small town and rural environment, I mean, we cook. <laughs> That's what we do. You have, you have to eat something before you can have the pie, right? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. You have to clean your plate. Yeah. Um, but again, I think that, um, you know, we're, I put, you know, cook dinner six nights a week probably, maybe one pizza thrown in a week or something of that nature. But yeah. um, it really is just part of my life and so I don't really see any differentiation between pastry work and and savory cooking and um, they just all all are part of you know nourishing your friends and family and and giving you something to do that's right well um, one of the you say that you've incorporated some new dishes uh, everything obviously with local ingredients but you use some new dishes, new flavors, new um, a new take on on old preparations, and one of them is the peanut chicken, and that looks absolutely terrific. Can you just we'll finish up with talking about that a little bit? Tell us about the peanut chicken. It's a um, whole roasted chicken, and and I'm sure everyone's familiar with the, sort of the technique or process of putting a flavored butter, maybe a garlic butter or a herbed butter between the skin and the meat mm-hmm. of the chicken when you roast it to keep it moist and tender and so um, just hanging around the house and thinking about my friends in uh, Memphis that are some of those backyard poultry people which I'm sure y'all have a bunch of up there too um, and uh, one thought led to another and so I made a mixture that's kind of got a little touch of a little Asian spin to it but not so much but I've always really sort of loved that Thai um, peanutty flavor with chicken. And so instead of using a compound butter between the skin and the the meat of the chicken, um, I used a peanut butter. And um, it just keeps it so moist. And you get sort of that uh, deep infusion of that nutty, nutty flavor. And it really does keep the, the chicken just insanely juicy. Well, and, and, and this, it just it, really crisps up nicely too. I, I, if I could have eaten it off the page, I would have because <laughs> it looked really good. Um, and again, it didn't seem like it was something too, you know, too crazy, trying too hard to be too modern, or it just all fits in beautifully. And uh, of course, you know, seeing the movie and knowing you worked on the movie, and then getting the feeling from that, and then looking at the book, it just um, it all works. It all ties together. And oh, thank you. And I and I encourage you to to continue telling more of the stories because the stories are are as rewarding as the recipes and and I thank you so much for the book and and the work that you've done and hope that we'll talk again soon. Oh well, it's completely been my pleasure anytime. Okay, well, thank you all for joining and this has again been a taste of the past and I'm your host Linda Palaccio.
Aaron Fitzpatrick, the host of our wine program, Unfiltered, is looking for help on Kickstarter to open Fork and Anchor, a general store inspired by two food-loving ladies with an equal affection for urban life, the sea, and the agricultural paradise of Long Island's North Fork. The store is situated in a growing community of farmers and winemakers and will become a meeting place offering prepared foods, a variety of sun-dries, and a selection of homespun products, many of which will have their origins in New York State. Your backing will help them fulfill their dream of fostering relationships with the community and making the local food system accessible on a broader scale. Search kickstarter.com for Fork and Anchor and donate today. The following is a message from the Climate Reality Project. Join us on September 14th to the 15th for 24 Hours of Reality, a presentation delivered in locations around the world sponsored by former U.S. Vice President Al Gore. View the live stream at climaterealityproject.org. Go to our website, tell your friends, join our watch party, and help others learn about what can change in a day. Again, that's climaterealityproject.org.